We're launching a brand new series today, this whole week, and it's about confidence, the confidence paradox. A paradox is a truth that appears to be contradictory. And in the kingdom of God, it's always a paradox, like the way to get is to give. The, the way to live is to die to yourself. But they're over and over. It's just the opposite of what the natural mind kind of thinks. So as we launched this new series, I was reading last week this question. What do you think is the number one thing a woman is looking for in a man? Now, there's a lot of things, but I said the number one thing. Now, money has come up a couple of times, but that's not number one. Actually, according to what I read this week, it's confidence. It's confidence. Think about it. If you think about that, when somebody's living with authentic confidence, when they look you right in the eye when they're talking with you, when they have this connection that whatever life throws at them, they can handle it. They're willing to take risks. They're willing to run challenges. When they talk to you, you don't have to guess what they're thinking. They just speak the truth, hopefully in a gracious way. And right now, guys, if that's you, you're sitting straight up, your shoulders are back, your head is high, you're ready for life. Well, who doesn't want to be around that for crying out loud? On the other hand, when somebody is living where their confidence has gotten beaten out of them, when the evil one whispers, you can't do this, who do you think you are? You can't make it, you don't have what it takes, it makes you less joyful, it makes you less generous, and it kind of robs life out of you. It makes everything harder. It's harder to do a job interview without that confidence. It's harder to ask somebody out for a date. Some of you are going to wait till Jesus comes back to ask somebody out for a date. You know, you can't, what are you thinking, that God's going to appear to them and send them over to your seat? I don't think so. It's harder to perform well at work. So a natural question is, where can I get confidence, Rick? Because we'd all rather live with confidence. I was thinking this week, maybe, maybe the guy who has more grounds for confidence, humanly speaking, than anybody else would be the guy on the screen right now, Tom Brady. He's just he's ridiculously good looking, great hair, great teeth, amazingly talented. He's a winner. He's won six Super Bowls. He's married to a supermodel for crying out loud. He's famous all over the world, and he's got a gazillion dollars. I hate you, Tom Brady. Humanly speaking, if you want to live always confident, just be born Tom Brady. Just be born with incredible athletic ability, amazing leadership qualities, and be really popular, win six Super Bowls, marry a supermodel, have great hair, great teeth, and a world-famous uh, be a zillionaire, whatever. Another really different guy on the opposite end would be the Apostle Paul. And he made what might be the most staggering claim about confident living ever spoken by a human being of the human race. And this is what Paul said. He writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident. Now, Paul didn't throw words around loose. You think about it. What would it mean every day? Good day, bad day, good mood, bad mood, difficult task, hard circumstances, to be always confident. Now, here's the thing about Paul. He wasn't Tom Brady. We don't know for sure what he looked like, but historical records describe him as short, bald, and he had a hooked nose. He didn't have tons of money. He wasn't famous. He was kind of infamous. He was in prison. He wasn't married to a supermodel or a trophy wife. But here's the thing about Paul. He was confident. 
but he was not self-confident. This gets us inside this confidence paradox. It's just a natural human thing. We'd love to face life with confidence, especially where we live in Western culture. I mean, where we live here is to believe in yourself, to be confident in yourself. That's the holy grail if you go to all motivational speakers. But with Paul, he had enormous confidence. It just wasn't in himself. It was in God. God had put his spirit in Paul. And Paul says, therefore, that's why I'm always confident. I love confidence. You know, sometimes you have to make a choice. Make it. Well, it might not be right. Make it. You know, that's what, that's what a leader does. You call the play in the huddle. You, you call, the, you call the, the strategy in a submarine or you call it in a fighter. You've got to make a call. And people who are afraid, who are not confident, won't even make a call. And that's probably the worst call of all. So Paul says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's, that's a paradox, right? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. This is the kingdom of God now. It's different than the one we live in. When I'm weak, and I'm thinking, really? I don't like to be weak. And that really gets to this dynamics about human life. A guy by the name of Andy Crouch wrote a cute little book. It's not a big book. It's called Strong and Weak. And Andy talks about how we tend to think of weakness and strength as a continuum where you either have one or you have the other. He uses the word vulnerability. You're either vulnerable or you have authority. Now, a lot of us like to think, man, we'd just like to have more authority, more money, more education. Yeah. And some people are more comfortable actually being vulnerable. Andy says you can be high or low in authority and you can be high and low in vulnerability. When you look at the Bible, it's very interesting because God says He made all of us to have enormous authority. When God created human beings, it says He made us in His image and likeness. God actually said to human beings, I want you to exercise dominion, and I want you to do it for good and to do it powerfully over the earth just like a king, really high in authority. Then when it comes to vulnerability, He made human beings very vulnerable. The text says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, naked is a word about vulnerability. Have you ever felt very vulnerable, and you said, man, I feel so naked. I felt so exposed. Yeah, I've heard you say that. Part of what's so interesting about this word, you didn't know this. You'll have to talk about it over coffee. Only human beings can be naked. You ever think about that? No, you did not. Sometimes people will dress their cat or dog up in little sweaters or dresses, but when they don't have their sweater or dresses on, nobody, nobody has ever said, look at that naked dog. <laughs> nobody, because only people can be naked. Animals can't be naked. So there's an old joke. Why is it you never see two elephants swimming together? Because they only have one pair of trunks. I feel a little naked right now. A little vulnerability right now. So God made us to be high in authority, but he made us to be high in vulnerability. When the greatest human being who ever lived, Jesus, came, he was super high in authority, and he actually said, get this, all authority, can't get any better than that, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You can't top that. At the same time, he was the most vulnerable human being that ever lived. The Bible says he humbled himself in Philippians. He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death, 
even death on a cross, the humiliating death of a slave. Wow. People saw in Jesus more authority than they had ever seen, and they saw vulnerability like they had never seen. So he was revealing to us something deep about the human condition. If somebody has a lot of authority, but they feel like they're invulnerable, then that moves them into being exploiting or oppressive. Bullies do it. Tyrants do it. Now, if somebody has no authority, but they don't want to experience any vulnerability, then they withdraw. They just try to live in bubble wrap. And a lot of people live there. If somebody has very little authority, very little power, very little education, very little resources, but they're extremely vulnerable, they really suffer. So, if we experience great authority and great vulnerability, we're living in the dignity and worth as image bearers of God. We're transparent with each other. We're vulnerable with each other. We're dependent on God, not ourselves. Then human beings and human community can flourish. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. Everybody wants to have a lot of authority. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. So we're going after this and looking at this character in the Bible who wrestles with confidence and authority and vulnerability enormously. And it may help someone in here. He's a guy by the name of Jacob. His struggle begins even before he's born. Kind of fun beginning to his story. His mom and dad are Isaac and Rebecca. They're married for 20 years. They weren't able to have children. I mean, the dude does have children. He's 60 years old, for those of you on AARP. <laughs> what have you done today? Ah, nothing. Just spawned another kid. How's your, how's your pension going? Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to throw that out there for some of you that are bored with church. In, in the ancient world, it was a big deal not to have kids. I mean, much bigger than today. And for 20 years, his wife is barren. And he prayed for 20 years for his wife. She got pregnant. But her pregnancy was painful. She didn't think she could stand it. So here's where the story starts. Genesis chapter 38. When her time came to give birth, sure enough, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red as if snugly wrapped in a hairy blanket. Doesn't that sound like a cute kid? <laughs> give him back. Is that where, where did he come from? Well, they named him Esau, which means hairy. His brother followed, and he was clenched tight to Esau's heel. They named him Jacob, which could mean heel grabber or the deceiver or supplanter. The idea is that this story of Jacob begins in the womb. Way back in the womb, little fetal Jacob looks at little fetal Esau and says, hey, he's closer to the exit than I am. He's going to get out first. That'll make him firstborn. He'll be the heir. He'll get the birthright. He'll get the blessing. He'll get the land, the money. He'll be daddy's favorite. I won't. He'll be number one. I'll always be number two. I can't trust mom or the universe or the uterus or whatever it is to change out there and take care of me. So I'll have to look after myself. I'll grab my brother's heel and yank him back at the last minute, and I'll get out of the womb first. Then I'll be number one. I'll be the firstborn. But the plan doesn't work. There's all this travail going on inside of Rebecca, but he doesn't get out first. He fails. He's a little fetal failure. And that's going to haunt him his whole life until you'll see later it saves him. So they're born. And the text goes on. The boys grew up. Esau became an expert hunter, uh, an outdoorsman, six Super Bowls, big teeth. Jacob was a quiet man, preferring the indoors among the tents. Esau, 
He's got it, man. He's got it all. He's Tom Brady with fur. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, he's got a lot less testosterone. Then the parents come into play. We're told that Isaac, the dad, loved Esau because he loved his food. Esau was a hunter. Isaac just loved the food Esau would bring him. You know, people are such mixed bags. You have to know this about the Bible. Somebody asked me, why is God so gracious to Jacob in this story when Jacob gets so much wrong? See, the Bible is not a story about examples of character virtue. It is a story about God's grace working with mixed up, broken people like you and me. It's a book of grace, not merit. People who don't understand that, you know, flatten out the Bible. They never get it. Isaac, on the one hand, is so devoted to God, he prays 20 years for God to make his wife pregnant. 20 years. But he's so shallow, he plays favorites with his own two boys. He loves Esau for one reason, food. He might as well have named him Little Cinnabon. <laughs> That's why he loves him the best, it says the Scripture. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, why does Rebecca love Jacob the most? Again, it doesn't tell us in the Bible. We have to fill in the blank. Maybe it's because she felt sorry for him. Maybe it's because he was an indoor kid. So he was with her more than Esau. Maybe it was because she had problems with Isaac, and this was her way to get back at him. But whatever the reason, she loved Jacob. And as Jacob grew up, his identity, somebody listen, his identity became, I'm not Esau. Esau's the strong one. Esau's the hunter. Esau's got the teeth and hair. Esau is my dad's favorite. He's got all the money. That's his identity. I am the one my father doesn't love. What a crummy identity. But that's what happened. And that'll wound you to the core. And everybody knows a little bit of that feeling one way or the other. I'm the one my mother does not love. I'm the one my husband does not love. I'm the one my wife does not love. I'm the one my daughter does not love. I'm the one my son does not love. That's hard to bear. And then all this stuff happens inside of us. And we think, listen, we think, you know, if I were Esau, if only I had Esau's body or Esau's wealth or Esau's gifts or his teeth, Esau's personality, if only. Now listen to this. You were not made to be Esau or Tom Brady. You were made just right to be you. And if God is ever going to bless you, It'll have to be right where you are in your life, your body, your circumstances, your age, your situation. That's the only place God can bless you, right where you are. And He will. It's not if only. He doesn't bless you if only you were, if only you had, if only I could be. It's who I am, where I am, what I am at the moment. That's the way He comes to everybody. Now, that's encouraging. It ought to be for some of you, I know. Jacob, th let's move on. Jacob thinks, boy, if I were just Esau, shucks. So there's a struggle between them. Who's going to get the birthright? Who's going to get the blessing? And then when Isaac is an old man, he can't hear, can't see, he's feeble. He thinks he might be dying. He says to Esau, his favorite, go kill an animal, make me some stew. I'll eat it, then I'll give you the blessing. And Rebecca, they live in a tent, folks. They haven't got big rooms in the back of the house. Rebecca hears it. So she gets her son Jacob, her favorite, and she tells him what's going on. She says, look, I'm going to make some stew real quick before Esau gets back. You go into your dad. You pretend to be Esau. I'll get you some veneers to put on your teeth, <laughs> and I'll get you some fur, 
and you'll get the blessing. You'll get the good stuff. You get to grab it. And Jacob responds to his mom, Rebecca, my brother Esau is a hairy man, mom. I'm a smooth skinned guy. What happens if dad touches me? I would appear to be tricking him. I'll bring down a curse on myself instead of a blessing. Now, Jacob is not so concerned about the ethics of this deal. He just doesn't want to get in trouble. He said, I don't want to have a curse. And Rebecca's response is so interesting. His mom says to him, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Now, that tells us something about old Rebecca. Rebecca is very high in authority. She doesn't feel vulnerable at all. And you got to remember, they lived in a patriarchal world. Isaac is the dad. He's the guy who's supposed to be in charge. But the wife, the woman here, actually has a stronger personality. She actually has a more forceful will. Does that ever actually happen in marriages today? Yeah. Well, it sure does here. Her response to Jacob is, oh, yeah, I'm really worried about your dad. He can't even get off the bed. He really scares me. Let the curse be on me. And by the way, it was. She never saw him again the rest of her life. She was gone by the time he ever came home, and he left at 40. She'll use her authority and her invulnerability to exploit Isaac, her, her husband, and Esau, her son. And she says to Jacob, you know, come on, son, just do what I tell you to do. And that's where oppression and exploitation come together. This is the lure. I can have all authority and no vulnerability. Well, who wouldn't want that if you could have it, but you can't. It's a delusion. You experience that temptation all the time. You come into a room like this, hundreds of people gathered together. Now, for a lot of people, that's kind of a threatening thing. For some, you know, we have that moment, we greet each other. Well, now with COVID, we wave. If you're introverted, you, you, you hate that, that moment. For extroverts, you love it. There's a few among us, I know who you are, you're ultra extroverted. And you love that moment. And what's going on in your mind is hundreds of new people, and they all get to meet me today. How fabulous is that? How lucky for them. How much I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> what if you go to a party and you feel like a stranger? You feel like an outsider. You feel so naked and vulnerable. What if somebody invented a beverage, something you could put in a glass, and you could drink from that glass while you're walking around, and it made your discomfort magically go away? What if there was a kind of liquid you could just drink it, and it would make your sense of vulnerability diminish and your sense of confidence enhance? What if there was a beverage like that? Somebody would make zillions of dollars selling a beverage like that. Well, there actually is. Now, we don't serve it in our cafe, so don't look too excited. But there actually is. You see, when you use alcohol to manage your vulnerability, you're going to have for a little while more authority without vulnerability. But the irony is, if you keep doing that enough, eventually what happens, it requires more and more of that stuff, and your feeling grows smaller and smaller. And if you get hooked on it in time, you'll end up, you have no authority. You're totally vulnerable, and now you're a basket case, and now you've got to get help because you don't have any authority at all. You've been robbed of your dignity. Maybe you've lost your job, lost your marriage, lost your self-worth. See, what a lie the enemy puts on us. Authority, the writer of the book, Andy says, is the capacity for meaningful action. 
Eventually, if you get addicted to anything, your ability to keep your word, to maintain your relationships, to be your best self gets eroded. And your vulnerability goes sky high. And you end up with intense suffering. So this is temptation. It's sin. It goes back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. The serpent comes to the woman, Eve. His comment to her was, hey, babe, if you trust me. Now, by the way, he didn't look like a snake. I don't know if you all know that. I don't think any woman would be enamored and attracted to a crummy snake. So I don't know what form this thing took, but it was ravishingly beautiful and tempting. It was after the sin and curse, it was condemned to be a serpent on its belly to eat dust. See, you didn't, you weren't, you talk about that over some Ethiopian coffee today, all right? So the devil says to her, hey, babe, if you'll trust me, if you'll disconnect from God, you'll be like God. That means you'll have high authority, you will not die, you'll have no vulnerability. And she buys into it. And she defies God. And what actually happens is the exact opposite of what the enemy promised. Temptation, sin, promises all authority, no vulnerability. But ultimately, all it gives you is vulnerability and no authority. So she says to Jacob, you can put on Esau's clothes and smell just like him. We'll put a goat skin on you so you'll be hairy. You'll feel just like him. And you can talk like him and act like him. And Jacob goes into his dad. So he goes into his father and he says, my father, yes, Isaac said. Isaac's very feeble, can't see, can't hear well. Which son are you? He says. Jacob answered, I'm Esau. And then there's a world of emotion in the next phrase. I'm your firstborn son, Esau, son number one, the one you love. It works. And he fools his dad. Jacob learns this little lesson that if you can't get what you want by being who you really are, maybe you can get it by pretending to be who you're not. Maybe if you can't get it by being Jacob, you can get it by trying to be Esau. And even in the church, how often people pretend. We pretend to be and think and believe who we're not. See, why try to be somebody I'm not? Well, I'll tell you why. Because people are thinking, if I'm just me, if I show up just me, I won't get the good stuff. Well, when I don't know about you, but that's a I'm around preachers. That's, uh, for, you can't know what that's like in mass. It's like a pack of dogs that all sniff everybody <laughs> in there. See, who's number one? Who's this? Who's that? Who's worth following? Who's worth connecting to? goes on all the time. And I have this funny little thing I do because I don't care. And so if I'm going to be friends with somebody, it's got to be, who I am, take me or, or lose me, I don't care, but you're not going to get the fake me, praise the Lord, hallelujah, uh, my brother, hold it, let me, let me uh, I, nobody in the Bible did that, nobody, not on one page, and I'll always at some point say something that'll be slightly controversial, to, and I want to see how they react to it, Ron Corzine tells me, you do that magically, you, I want to find out if that little bit will turn you away from friendship or you can handle it. Because if we're going to be friends, you're going to get the real me, not this fake me. Okay? So I'm not different when I walk off stage than I am up here. I'm not, I don't have two voices. One, Hello, this is Pastor Godwin. It's Rick. 
Hey, Rick, what's going on? Not much. I'm bored sick. What are you doing? <laughs> Wouldn't you rather be friends with somebody that's, uh, if you've got a few friends, surely that's the way you are. Well, me too. I don't want any fake, fake uh, religious friends. And uh, I, I sort of sort them out real quick. I wish I'd learned to do that when I was younger. Yeah. When Jesus came, all authority and all vulnerability, that was his. He had this amazing dynamic where he would just let people be who they were. And he didn't care. They wouldn't pretend in his presence. Tax collectors, Gentiles, non-Jews, prostitutes, lepers. This little community where people would take off the mask and be real. He hated it when people pretended. He actually went after it. He called it hypocrisy. They're wearing a mask like they did back then in the old uh, entertainment venues. Jesus was the first one to use it in that way because he hated it when people would use faith or God or religion to pretend to be better than they are or to be somebody they're not. goes on all the time. I, I, I remember an occasion where a guy had to pray about what he was going to wear and pray about whether or not he had something for sale if he would sell it to this person or to that person. And I told one of my friends who was engaged in dealing with this client, I says, drop him immediately. I said, he is full of religious pride. And what he's doing is standing behind all that fake garbage to pretend to be something he's not and to make you think, oh, he's or he wants to make God uh, feel so good about him that he will be so pleased with him because he's so hyper-religious. Eh. Gag me. That's what God says. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Nonsense. I'm just, I was wondering how far I can go with this, but maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough. I'll let you know what goes on. That's religious pride. That's, that's pharisaical. Nobody talked like that. Nobody did that in the New Testament. I love Peter. Peter pulled out a sword and went after a guy's head. That's three years of walking with Jesus. That's got a little more clout than most of you have, or me. And after three and a half years, he won't take a guy's head off. I thought, yeah, man, I can relate to that. <laughs> okay. Just, see, church has been so fake. It's just, and Texas has a lot of fake. I'm sorry. It is a, it is really, church is not vulnerable and open and friendly and real. Yet Jesus takes you just as you are. Now, he wants to transform you, but he still takes you just as you are. And if, if I've got different kids, and many of you have several children. Some of you are repopulating the earth, I think. You have so many children. But, but I'm thinking, they don't respond the same way to, to your discipline, to your, your request. They're, they're emotionally different, right? Well, God made you, and he knows how you respond. God says, Rick, why aren't you like T.D. Jakes? Rick, why aren't you like Billy Graham? Because he didn't make me to be Billy Graham. He made me, and he saved just me, and he's working on just me, and he knows that's why you can't try to be somebody else, or you're going to go crazy, and you never get it anyway. Just be the best authentic self of you you can possibly be. So get, for us to be a community, a church where you can come in and be real, that's the only way we actually have confidence. Jacob doesn't do it. His brother Esau says, I'm going to kill you. Rebecca hears it and she says, Jacob, okay, Jake, 
Esau's the hunter. He's the athletic one. He's got the power. You don't stand a chance against him. Get out of town. He runs away from home. Forty years old. He's lost now everything. He didn't get firstborn. He didn't get dad's love. He's now run away from everything in family. He's all alone. He's all by sleeping alone in the wilderness on a rock under his head to protect him maybe from wild animals because he's now at his maximum vulnerability. Then it happens. He has a vision. He sees a ladder and he sees angels ascending up and down that ladder. Heaven is not coming down to Jacob. The angels are gone. But above the ladder stood the Lord and he said to him, I am the Lord. Now that's interesting. That's the only time that title is used in the whole Bible. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham. Wait a minute. Abraham and his father? Watch what God's doing here. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, of course, Isaac was Jacob's real dad, so why didn't God say, I'm the God of your father, Isaac? Well, Isaac was Esau's daddy, the one the daddy loved. Jacob was not Esau. So I think God's trying to say, hey, Jake, I know. I know all about the deal a dysfunctional family. I care. I'll be your father. I will heal you if you'll let me. And Jacob has his first spiritual awakening. It doesn't solve all of his problems yet. He's got a lot of mess to go through in this story. But what he says is, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. God was right here, he says. And he gives it a name. He calls it Bethel, the house of God. Surely this is the gate of heaven. God has come to me, little number two, Jacob, little uh, son number two, the deceiver, the heel grabber. I can trust God. God will be with me. And then God says, all peoples of the earth. Think about that. Think about that kind of a word coming to this little heel grabber, second best, no teeth, no fur, no trophy wife, <laughs> the surplanter, Jacob, and says, all people on the earth will be blessed through you and your children. I am with you, Jake, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. Wow. I mean, God uses the most ordinary people, sometimes the most prone to trouble people, to do the greatest thing. Because remember, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's a paradox, see? So, the most ordinary place could be in your life extraordinary, not because you're doing something extraordinary, because God's with you. He invites Jacob into a life where he could be always confident, where he could live with all the authority of being an image bearer of God and all the vulnerability of a dependent, finite, sinful little human being. And that's where it becomes possible to live with genuine confidence. It's such an interesting word, confidence. Fi comes from the Latin, simplify means always faithful. That's for our Marines. Confidence. To place confidence in God. What matters is not how much confidence I have. What matters is what I put my confidence in. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how much confidence you have if you've got massive incompetence. It's better to have a little confidence in the right thing than massive confidence in the wrong thing. I mean, if I took a survey, I'd say, where's your confidence? My confidence is not in the government. My confidence is not in, in, in your body. You can lose anything. You can wake up with a tumor tomorrow. It's not in your looks, your hotness, your wealth, your 401K. I was talking to a friend recovering from COVID, and I said, boy, it, it takes sickness to make you realize that if you don't have health, you don't have anything. It just doesn't matter. Not if you don't have any health. Most people I know would give all their money to have health. I prize health. 
In fact, it says in John chapter 3, may you be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers, right? Good health is, a, is from, from God. It's a good thing. <laughs> well, you have to cooperate a little bit. I mean, you can't eat jelly rolls regular and, and too much fast food. That, that, that's your part. Don't blame the devil. It, it's my arm and my money buying it, right? So you, you've got to do something. But I think good health is the rule of Scripture for the most part. So it's better to have a little confidence in God than massive confidence in myself. So that's what Paul's writing about. Yourself, listen, yourself is going to be in trouble one day. Yourself is going to take on an enemy yourself can't handle. And that's the enemy Paul's talking about here when he talks about being always confident. Here's the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We are confident. I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, Paul, who is no Tom Brady, says, when the ultimate enemy, when death comes, I will be confident because my confidence is not in myself or my ability or my skill or my wealth. And I'll tell you something about yourself and myself. No matter how magnificent yourself looks today, no matter how educated yourself might be, no matter what kind of great connections yourself has piled up, no matter how impressive a resume yourself has written, the day is going to come when yourself is going to be old and wrinkled and frail, and death is going to come, and your pretty little self is not going to beat death. It's appointed unto man once to die. You can't beat that. I don't care whether yourself, where, where yourself has been, how strong it's looked. It doesn't matter how connected you are, how bright you are, how smart you are, how pretty you are. It doesn't matter if you're Tom Brady, Tom Cruise, Tom Selleck, Tom Hanks, Tom Brokaw, Tom Jefferson, Tom Edison, Thomas Paine, or Tom Thumb. It doesn't matter what kind of a Tom you were. Our confidence is not in anything we've done. Our confidence is in this. Our God is able. Our God is able to roll away stones. Our God is able to forgive sinners. Our God is able to give grace. Our God is able to replace despair with hope. He's able to make weak hands strong. He's able to make the lame leap for joy. He's able to bring light into darkness. Our God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. Our confidence in the, is in the God who is able, no matter what life throws at me or you. That's why Paul says, therefore, because of that, we are always confident. And that's what we're going to learn in this series. So this week, practice confidence in God. When I get up in the morning, my first thought gets to be, God, it's you and me facing the day together. I'll look forward to it right now. When I'm with other people, I'll look them right in the eye and be confident in God. This week, I won't compare myself to anybody, not even Tom Brady or Esau. This week, I'll say what I'm thinking in great confidence and trust that you'll work through that. This week, I won't obsess over my money. I won't worry about that. And it is so closing thought, so interesting. When Jacob has this encounter with God, his response, the last thing he says is, God, I'm going to tithe everything I've got. Why? Because I trust you now. God, you're watching out for me. So Jacob the heel grabber becomes Jacob the giver. This week, when you go to school, when you go to work, instead of worrying about all the problems and all the stuff you haven't figured out, I will be confident. It's not just me. It's me and God co-laboring together, and we can do it. Amen? And always confident. 
And what God says to Jacob is very interesting. He says, I'll bless you, Jake, but it's not about just you getting blessed. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, Jacob. You little Jacob, you little heel grabber, you little deceiver, you little second born. You're going to be part of what I'm doing so the whole world and the most vulnerable can flourish. And we serve a Jesus who came to earth with great authority, but also who said, whatever you do for the least of these, for the naked, for the blind, for the alone, for the imprisoned, for the child protection children, for the impoverished, for the most vulnerable, whatever you do for these, you do for me. You see it? It's not about self-confidence. It's not about smart, strong people living smart, strong lives. When authority and vulnerability dance together, there's Jesus. There's the kingdom of God, and we're always confident. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.